0: Hi, it's Tom here. The Spike podcast is about to get underway in just one moment. We've got a fantastic special edition for you today, all about free speech with very special guest, Toby Young. But before we get into all that, I just want to tell you about how best you can support this podcast and our work. All of our podcasts and articles are free and we want to keep it that way. But to do that, we rely on the generosity of our readers and our listeners through donations. In particular, regular monthly donations help us enormously, allowing us to plan ahead for bigger and better things. Even £5 a month can be a huge help. So if you like our work and you do want to support us, please do consider becoming a regular donor just go to spiked-online.com and click on the big red donate button in the top right corner to sign up. One-off donations are of course also greatly appreciated. That's spiked-online.com and the big red button. Thanks so much and now on with the show.
1: Hello and welcome to a special edition of the Spiked podcast. We'll be discussing the crisis of free speech in Britain and what to do about it.
2: Do you think it was right to appoint Toby Young, given the things he has said repeatedly on Twitter? An Oxford University academic has been assigned additional security after she says she received threats from transgender activists. ITV News broadcaster Alistair Stewart is stepping down after he made errors of judgement
0: on social media. Mr Miller found himself at the centre of a hate crime investigation.
1: As ever, I'm joined by Spike's Deputy Editor, Tom Slater. Hello. And I'm also delighted to be joined by a special guest, Toby Young. Hi, Fraser. Toby is an associate editor at Quillette, a columnist at The Spectator. But most personally for today, he is the founder of the Free Speech Union. Toby, so tell us a bit about what is the Free Speech Union and why did you set it up?
0: So the Free
2: Speech Union is a non-partisan mass membership organisation that stands up for the speech rights of its members. And the reason for setting it up is because free speech has never been in greater peril, not just in the UK, but I think across the Anglosphere at any point, I think, since the Second World War. What's the evidence of that? well, in britain 's universities, I think there 's no doubt that there is a free speech crisis. A survey was done by a couple of academics at Lincoln University for the UCU the big the largest academic trade union mm. in in two thousand and seventeen uh, and they compared the state of free speech in the u k to the state of free speech across the European Union and found that uh, we we scored the second lowest. Um, uh, so that was pretty shocking. There was a policy exchange report last year, uh, and one of its findings was they surveyed hundreds of students. One of their findings was that 60% of Brexit supporting students didn't feel comfortable expressing that view in front of their classmates. So that was a report by the Legatum Institute showing that. So there's no doubt, I don't think, you know, contrary to The Guardian's claims and the claims of others that there is a free speech crisis in Britain's universities, uh, and we see evidence of it all the time. Probably the most recent example is Selina Todd, Professor of Mm. Modern History at Oxford, uh, now needs a security guard to accompany her when she goes from her rooms to the lecture theatre because she's offended the Um, (laughs) trans-Taliban. In the art sector, there was a report in the Times last week, Mm. uh, again based on a pretty comprehensive survey, and it found that 80% of the respondents said that If you expressed dissent from a very narrow range of views, uh, you threatened being ostracized by your colleagues, even losing your job. Mm. Um, But perhaps the most shocking bit of evidence, is the bit of evidence that emerged after uh, Harry Miller's case was heard in the High Court a few weeks ago. Harry Miller was the ex-cop who was visited by the police and told he had to check his thinking after liking and retweeting a comic verse about transgendered people. And uh, it was recorded as a non-crime hate incident. He decided not to take that lying down, judicially reviewed the police and the guidance from the official. Policing college guidance handbook uh, that they'd been acting on, uh, judicially reviewed that in the High Court, and the judge ruled in his favor in one respect. They said he said that the police had been acting like the Stasi, compared them to the Gestapo, quoted yeah. Orwell, mm. quoted Mill. From that point of view, that bit of it was fantastic. But he also said that actually the um, official hate crime guidance was completely lawful Mm -hmm. and actually there was nothing wrong with the police recording on Harry's record the fact that he had committed a non-crime hate incident so Harry Miller's now appealing that uh, verdict to the Supreme Court and has been given leave to do so and one of the things the Free Speech Union will be doing will be crowdfunding to help him pay his legal costs because appealing something to the Supreme Court is pretty expensive but uh, one of the facts that emerged in the wake of that verdict was that 120,000 people have been investigated in England and Wales in the past five years uh, for committing uh, non-crime hate incidents. That works out at about 66 people per day. Yeah. The police are investigating uh, for, you know, misgendering someone on Twitter. What are they thinking? We're in the midst of, you know, a knife crime epidemic. The rate of successful investigations into burglary, auto-crime, muggings, Mm. has never been lower. Why are they wasting their time policing people's tweets when they should be policing our streets. It's just
0: completely bonkers. Far less dangerous, certainly, it feels like, (laughs) for a lot of these people. But one thing I was interested to get your thoughts on, Toby, was what gap you felt that the FSU was kind of filling, because obviously there are civil liberties organisations in this country. You think about Index on Censorship, Liberty, often dealing mainly with state censorship, often state censorship that happens abroad. But it does feel like, on some level, that a lot of the things that you've been talking about, either those organisations haven't necessarily been at the forefront of that discussion, or the kinds of more kind of cultural forms of censorship we find, you know, places in which there's on social media for people to be sacked, etc. They just don't seem to have necessarily as much to say about that. Do you see the FSU as kind of filling a bit of a gap in that respect of that kind of censorship? that we Yeah, saw? I
2: mean, I'd be loathe to criticise any of the organisations mm. in this space, particularly Index, which I think does a pretty good job. But they tend to focus on the more high-profile cases, their resources. I mean, across the across all these organisations are, are quite limited. They're not membership organisations. As you say, they don't do much uh, to try and defend people on social media. One of the things I hope the Free Speech Union will be able to do will be to defend its members if they are targeted by digital outrage mobs and cancelled on social media. I think that... Um, Often those organizations, because they are so respectable, are sometimes a little bit cautious when Mm -hmm. it comes to sticking up for the harder cases. So I hope we can work with them. And I hope that, you know, the Free Speech Union will be a complementary organization and um, just help generally strengthen uh, free speech. Um, But, you know, I don't think there can be enough activity, enough organizations promoting free speech.
1: Absolutely. One thing your critics will say and have said is that the Free Speech Union is just about right-wing people, right-wing columnists like yourself, want to be able to say what you like, but you don't want anyone to criticise you, or you don't want any of the consequences that come with free speech? I mean, how do you answer those kinds of criticisms?
2: Yeah, uh, it is a criticism you hear a lot. It seems to me to be very short-sighted, and just plain wrong, to think that the only beneficiaries, or even the chief beneficiaries, of protecting free speech are male, pale and stale conservatives like me. Mm. Um, in your interview, Tom, with uh, Ira Glasser, the legendary ex-head of the ACLU, uh, he made this point that um, without the protections of the First Amendment, uh, the civil rights movement in America wouldn't have got off the ground. It was only because they won a series of landmark... First Amendment cases that the civil rights leaders were able to organise, march, protest, demonstrate. Uh, And I'm sure the same applies to uh, the gay rights movement in the 70s. So the idea that uh, free speech is somehow not in the interests of beleaguered, marginalised groups, and Mm. it's only in the interests of straight white men like me, uh, is just nonsense. Another thing that irritates me about this is that um if you look at the members of our advisory council, the board of directors I've put together, you know, it's a more diverse group than the staff of The Guardian. I mean, you know, we've <laughs> probably not probably hard have, to have, do have, that. Not, not that <laughs> difficult, no, admittedly, but it's just complete nonsense. Mm. And um you sort of get the impression that free speech was a cause for the militant left mm. uh, 50 years ago, and the reason it isn't so much of a cause for the militant left anymore, is because they've won most of their battles. And now they see restricting free speech as a useful weapon mm-hmm. against their right wing opponents. But as Ira Glasser said in your interview, speech restrictions as a weapon are, are a bit like poison gas. You know, They seem like a good idea when you've got the enemy in your sights, mm-hmm. but then the wind
0: changes. Completely. And I think that's one of the things which also I think it's worth reminding a lot of people on the right that a lot of the reasons we have the free speech rights that we have today is because of the battles of the left. You know, Not only was the First Amendment a tool for the civil rights movement, but also through battling against attempts to ban them, that actually the good kind of free speech precedents in US law were established. Because obviously they were left in tatters after McCarthyism and, and all the rest of it. But I think it's just so short-sighted, these kinds of arguments that people have in relation to the left and and freedom of speech, just because you think that, as you say, Toby, a lot of these battles have kind of been won. But the issue is that you're handing over this power to the authorities, to the state, to employers. And the thing about free speech is that the reason it's it's so important for minorities is because it exists to protect the minority view you know that could be because you hold a particular political belief it could be you come from a particular religious denomination or it could be that you're from an ethnic minority you might want to voice certain concerns that the mainstream might not want to hear yeah Um, and just because you feel at the moment that people are broadly speaking quite open to hearing your point of view it doesn't mean it's going to be like that forever Um, and you've actually given up your right to complain if you've, you know, piled in and supported censorship in all those other instances. It just seems so incredibly short-sighted this.
1: One common problem seems to be at the moment, there seems to be this kind of free speech denialism. And there's been a series of articles in The Guardian. Most recently, the one was at the weekend, that says there is simply no free speech problem, particularly on campus. They say this is misrepresented, don't know what you're talking about. Ironically, a lot of them combine their you know, assertion that there's no free speech problem with calls to continue and deepen forms of censorship like safe spaces. Yes. Um, but I wonder, I wonder what you made of that kind of attack, that actually, you know, this is a load of fuss over, over nothing. Actually, you know, universities are getting on as normal. What are you complaining about?
2: One way to respond is just to point to the evidence. I mentioned the report compiled for the UCU three years ago. And I think one interesting thing to do actually would be to compile um, an update report um, mm. sampling the same people, and I, I'm pretty confident that you would find that actually things have got a lot worse since uh, 2017. One of the arguments people who claim it's a malady imaginaire, uh, one of the arguments they make is that there aren't many instances of people actually being no-platformed. Mm. You can rattle off half a dozen, but it's quite hard to get to you know a hundred, and uh, therefore it's not a big problem uh, but actually that ignores the extent of self-censorship mm. you know yeah. george orwell made the point um, that uh, the worst form, the most pernicious, the most widespread form of censorship is self-censorship mm. and actually that was something that the respondents were asked about in the UCU survey and I think it was more than half of the academics in the survey said that they had self-censored or that they routinely self-censored. It's worth, it's worth googling. It was a pretty mm. shocking report.
0: I think it's interesting as well because there is this kind of um, denialism. First of all they seem to not really understand what free speech is and how it works. Like No one is suggesting that if there's a problem with free speech either on campus or in society that you say anything and you know you the the authorities the gestapo is on to you like this is not how these things work the, mm. the test of free speech is not are you know broadly speaking most people in the middle allowed to express themselves that's always going to be the case the mainstream can always look after itself it's the question in those rare occasions where you do have people on campus or in society who are rubbing up against the orthodoxies of the day or the heresies of the day or whatever it is that they will be protected that's the test as in those kinds of cases but at the same time there's a lot of dishonesty in all of this you know these pieces often kind of just recycle a handful of instances of censorship on campus which maybe were a bit misreported or a bit over the top reported and then just use that to pretend that it's not an issue yet you know as you say in a concluding paragraph talk about and that's why no platform is so important so there's a Mm. kind of cognitive dissonance there as well I mean one thing that was interesting was at least up until recently a lot of people on the left in particular to our chagrin would try to make the case um, that well censorship is just an issue about the state you know it's the issue about who is allowed to speak on campus those are democratic decisions these are decisions that students make we all know that's nonsense because more often than not in fact in you know 99% of cases these are s- small groups of either bureaucrats or student union officials who are making these decisions from on high or just you know self-appointed kind of protest groups trying to shut things down at their own behest it's not about students themselves necessarily but i think the dishonesty there is also the fact that you know as you were saying toby there's been loads of cases of state censorship or kind of quasi state censorship yeah. that we've seen creeping in at the moment and they don't care about that either <laughs> no, yeah, so often they're in it's favor of that, of
1: that as a broad mm. idea
0: Completely. One really useful body of
2: evidence was the surveys that Spiked used Mm. to compile every year about Mm. the state of free speech in universities and ranking every university in the UK. Uh, And that's a piece of work. Uh, Tom, you and I had lunch and talked about this. That's a piece of work that the Free Speech Union would very much like to take on. If anyone out there listening would like to fund that piece of work, um, please get in touch. Toby at freespeechunion.org. And instantly if I'll just throw in the website address of the free speech Please union do. so anyone who's interested in joining or finding out more about it can can go to the website which is uh, freespeechunion.org.
1: One of the one of the really striking things, uh, and and in many ways this confirms that there's a bigger problem of self-censorship, but the window of um, what is acceptable discussion is shrinking all of the time. Or you know, what George Orwell will have called the shrinking dictionary. So no platform Famously began as no platform for fascists, but now we're constantly talking about no platform for feminists. Mm-hmm. And it's amazing to me that there are a large number of feminist women who are on the left, who are being censored by kind of fellow leftists. And yet, still, the problem is not being recognized. Still, censorship or free speech is seen as a right wing mm. issue, only to, you know, make Right wing points. Yeah.
2: It's almost like the Black Knight sketch, isn't it? In Monty Buck and Holy Grail. I think, I think some feminists have been red pilled as a result of being on the platform. They've woken up to the fact that, yes, there is a free speech crisis. But yeah, I hope that, um, lots of gender critical feminists who are finding themselves now on the receiving end of censorship, mm. join the free speech union and uh, we can stick up for them.
0: I think just on that point as well, it's kind of interesting how in some respects you would think our job would be easier than ever because, you know, the as you say, the bounds for acceptable thought and speech have shrunk so much that you're in a position where if you believe in biological sex, a position held by the vast majority of people in this country, yeah. <laughs> and that you can be in a situation like Selena Todd at Oxford where you're being given security guards to, to uh, accompany you to your lectures. And I think that's one of the kind of curious things about the moment that we find ourselves in as well, which is the fact that, of course, um, free speech, particularly as a kind of uh, as a legal right, um, has always existed to protect the minority. But given that you do have various kind of institutions in society, could be the media, um, big business, um, university campuses, of course, that have been captured by a very small kind of Id- ideology, as in mm. small as in mm. its um, a, it's an elite ideology. Only really, you know, it's not many people actually support it. You're in a quite curious position where often a majority position is the one that's demonised. On a broader scale, you kind of saw that with Brexit as well, insofar as something which 52% of the country has just voted for, is seen as something aberrant and strange and potentially proto-fascistic. So Mm. it's really, in some respects, the argument is easier to make than ever because all manner of opinions, you know, for instance, if you want to criticise certain religions or if you want to um, talk about biological sex, are suddenly seen as verboten and strange. But it does speak to how firm a hold that narrow section of society has over Mm. so many of these institutions that still they can police those boundaries. Yes, I mean, as you say, um, when it
2: comes to whether biological sex is bimodal, the vast majority of the population think it is um, and don't agree with Dawn Butler that um, babies aren't born (laughs) with a particular sex. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Possibly even trans actors don't agree with (laughs) with, with, with that. (laughs) Um, uh, But the trouble is that most people in authority, Mm. seemingly, have bought into this particular bit of trans orthodoxy and feel that if they challenge it because they 've been told by Stonewall and other lobby groups that just challenging it is a form of almost a form of violence mm. against transgender people you're denying their right to existence you're denying their existence and you're creating a kind of hostile environment for them by by challenging that particular crazy bit of trans orthodoxy uh, and a good example of this at the uh, launch party of the free speech union. One of the speakers was a mother of two and a pastoral care assistant called Christy Biggs last year uh, on her private Facebook account. So not, not, it wasn't even in any, any, it wasn't, it wasn't a public domain. Mm-hmm. It was on her mm-hmm. private Facebook account and she posted using her maiden name, not the name she's employed by. Uh, and she criticized the sex and relationship education program being used at her son's primary school. Not the school she taught at, she was teaching at a secondary school, but at her son's primary school. The particular program was using these quite hard-hitting American materials to teach children about transgenderism. Um, And she, as a Christian, she's a a devout Christian, she she was registering her objection to these materials being used. Mm. Someone complained to her secondary school, she was put through a six-hour disciplinary hearing, in which she was told that merely because she held those views, uh, she was a danger to vulnerable pupils in the school. And then after that, she was then sacked. I mean, sacked just for expressing dissent Mm. uh, from the kind of institutional orthodoxy Not even within her school, but at a neighboring school. Mm. I mean, it was, I mean, it's awful. And and it'll be one of the first cases. She's a member of the Free Speech Union and it'll be one of the first cases we're taking up.
1: That sounds like an important case. And I I think that perhaps that's one of the things that often is lost from the discussion is that, you know, people are losing their jobs, losing their livelihoods, or people's livelihoods have kind of become a target almost of would be censors. People go for the job. And I wanted to ask you a bit about Twitter storms and, Obviously, you quite infamously lost your job as the result of a, of a Twitter storm. But some people might say that these are just themselves expressions of, of free speech. You know, when does when does a Twitter storm go from being righteous outrage, which is mm-hmm. a, could be a bit of fun, to you know crossing the line?
2: Yeah, I think that's a really interesting question, and you get into. Quite a grey area, I think. Um, mm. In my case, just to clarify, I didn't just lose one job. Yeah. I, um, I, <laughs> I uh, it, you know, it was a domino effect. I, I resigned from the office for students mm. after eight days of being mobbed. Uh, you know, by the eighth day, my suitability to be on this 15 person non-executive board. Uh, my suitability being been debated in the House of Commons. Yeah. Um, a change.org petition calling for me to be fired mm-hmm. had attracted over 220,000 signatures. And there was a kind of press pack permanently stationed on my doorstep. My daughter couldn't even go to school. Um, so I, I, I stepped down uh, and uh, hoped that that would draw a line under the whole affair. But that—that that is unfortunately a bit like throwing a, a hunk of raw mm. meat to a shoal of piranha fish. Yeah. And then they went after all the other organisations that I was linked to working Mm. for. And I ended up having to step down as a Fulbright commissioner. I had to give up being an honorary fellow of Buckingham University. I had to step down from the board of the multi-academy trust that I'd helped set up to house the four free schools I co-founded. And I then had to give up my day job running an education charity. So I lost five positions in total. But yeah, it's an interesting question. When when does a group of people – who are kind of indignant about something somebody has said or a string of things somebody has said, a group of people expressing their passionate disapproval en masse mm. on Twitter, when does that cease to be just vigorous democratic debate, an example of free speech in action, yeah. and kind of uh, a tip over into a mobbing? I think one of the answers to that question is if the people who are criticising the person in question are calling for that person to be fired yeah. mm. to to lose their livelihood and not just saying after some sort of due process has been gone through in which this person is given an opportunity to defend themselves mm. then perhaps they should be fired or their employment should be reviewed their suitability should be reviewed over a proper period of time in a kind of quasi judicial way that would be fine but they're not they're not saying that they're saying Toss this person under a bus immediately, yeah. presumed guilty, and mm. don't even give them an opportunity to defend themselves. And anyone who's been in that position knows that, you know, you start by trying to defend yourself. You know, you fend off, you respond to kind of tweets, making accusations, pulling things you've said in the past out of context to make it appear as though you hold much more toxic views than mm. you really do. Yeah. And, and it doesn't make any difference at all. You know, it's, it's like trying to, it's like, you know, it's a fire hose kind of thrashing around on the ground and you try and kind of wrestle with it and you Mm. end up just getting really wet. (laughs) Um, And it's, you know, it's just hopeless. So after a while you stop responding and you're just kind of drowned in this torrent of accusations. And uh, it's very difficult in that that situation to create any sort of space Mm. in which to defend yourself. I mean, and it doesn't just happen to, you know, provocative journalists like me. It happened to Roger Scruton last year, Mm. um, a, a very distinguished, probably our most distinguished conservative philosopher. And to
1: ordinary uh, members of the public as well. And it happens to ordinary
2: members of the public all the time. Um, And one of the things that inspired me to want to set up the Free Speech Union is that when I found myself in that position, I didn't know who to turn to Mm. for advice, for good advice about, you know, should I resign? What should I say when I resign? Is there any point in apologising? Will I have to resign from these other positions? How can I defend myself from having to just give up everything I do and just kind of become a shut-in mm-hmm. um, and you kind of you really you're desperate for kind of good objective professional advice and you also want a bit of support yeah. in mm-hmm. that situation so one of the purposes I hope the free speech union can fulfill is to provide people who find themselves you know at the sharp end of a twitch fork mob with some advice and support so mm-hmm. they can figure out how best to deal with something like that because it's really overwhelming when it's happening to you I mean in my case It was fine. Um, You know, my friend stuck by me. I'm happily married. I was able to continue, you know, earning a living as a journalist, which I, you know, how I earn my living before I got diverted into education. So I was fine. But some people who find themselves
0: in that position aren't fine. I feel that this argument is so disingenuous when they make it that this is just our free speech, you know. Yeah. I mean, you even saw, you know, Dawn Foster being an example, suggesting that um, no platforming people was was free speech, despite <laughs> the fact that's shutting someone down by fiat. You know, yeah. it's, it's completely different. But I think it's quite clear where the line is in these things. It's like if you're at a university, there's a meeting on... You don't like what that person represents. You stage a protest, could be outside, could be inside, but you know you don't have the right to forcibly shut down the meeting Mm. and to stop people from expressing their opinions. You know, one, it's not a zero-sum game in relation to all of this stuff. But I think what's really um, striking about Toby's case and many of the other kind of Twitter mobbing cases that we've seen is how important it is to make the argument for free speech as a kind of cultural norm rather than just a legal right. I mean, it's fascinating that in the US they have as big problems, if not potentially more, than we do over here, despite the fact they have very strong free speech protections on a legal sense. This kind of mobbing, this kind of shutting down happens all the time. And just how important it is to establish as a principle in the minds of people and as a kind of norm in everyday political discussion that it's, first of all, a very strange and negative behaviour to, for instance, hound people out of jobs and to constantly Constantly make noise to the end of trying to shut them up off the basis of some jokes they made on Twitter several years ago, or they feel like taking, you know, wrenching things out of context um, to the end of, sh- of just taking down people they dislike is behaviour that should be rewarded in any way shape or form. And then I think the flip side of that and I think this is something that the Free Speech Union I'm sure could be very instrumental in, is putting more and more pressure onto sit- the institutions' employers to yes. be far more brave in relation mm-hmm. to these mm-hmm. things and not to cave in at the first sign of trouble. I think we really saw the kind of nadir of all of this with the Alistair uh, Stewart case mm-hmm. yeah. who bold accounts had purely, you know, quoted measure for measure on Twitter. There was one line in that piece of verse about an ape, given the fact he was arguing with a black person at the time who took offence, tried to shop him to his employer. And then he was, despite a long and distinguished career, and as Trevor Phillips pointed out in the mail, a background in anti-racism campaigning, was just unceremoniously dropped, you know. And I think that kind of... um, the need to kind of put that counter pressure onto mm. institutions to develop that kind of culture of free speech and you know on some level to say that people will be held to account if they cave in at the first sign mm-hmm. of trouble I think is an important part of this as well
2: absolutely yeah um, Twitter mobs wouldn't have the power they do if um, institutions just ignored them mm. um,
0: which is quite easy to
1: do
2: but yeah I think you're absolutely right and I, I hope one of the things the free speech union can do is not only um, uh, apply a bit of counter pressure to try and stiffen the backbones of institutions, particularly universities which come under pressure from mobs to defenestrate difficult people, but also to just generally educate people about why free speech is important. Um, One of the more positive findings, more optimistic findings of the policy exchange survey was that initially there didn't seem to be As much support for free speech Mm -hmm. among students as we would like. You know, when when asked to kind of balance the importance of free speech against the emotional safety of uh, minorities, in some cases, I think a majority sided with emotional safety. Uh, But when the same group of respondents were read a short statement, pointing out how important free speech is and sort of making a, a short argument for it, mm. um, they then, almost half of them, changed their minds and became pro-free speech. Mm. Um, so there's clearly, you know, an educational job to be done, which could be really positive. And one of the things I hope the Free Speech Union will do will be to encourage students to set up free speech societies, those that already have set them up, um tell them, offer them guidance on how they can resist attempts to no platform speakers they invite, how they mm. can um, stand up to student unions which don't want to kind of register them so they can't kind of have stalls at freshers' fairs. Uh, and also six forms, encourage six formers to set up uh, free speech societies, uh, but also to organise debates. Mm. We want to try and organise social events, which we'll call speakeasies, uh, in pubs, you know, maybe even in Weatherspoons, where people can, you know, talk about difficult issues like, you know, whether trans people should be able to self-identify in order to legally change their gender but talk about those issues without having to look over their shoulders or lower their voices in a kind of in a, in an open and friendly environment we have to kind of model i think as far as we can what it is to have a kind of grown-up conversation a well-mannered if possible good-humored conversation between people who passionately differ about really important issues and if we can do that i think we'll have made a lot of progress
1: and i think also the the culture of if we create a culture of free speech, that could have an impact on the law as well. Mm -hmm. Because many of the laws that are being used to, you know, string people up for various tweets have been around for a very long time. But suddenly, police are discovering that they think that this is an important thing to do, that this is an important use of their time. So, you know, the the Offensive Communications Act, for instance, has been around since, you know, 2003. But it's only in the last few years that it's really, the Mm -hmm. cases have really spiked up. You know, laws around... Hate speech have been in place for a very long time and have prote- protected for instance transgender people for you know as long as they've been around mm-hmm. but it's only recently that police and judges now feel that something like dead naming, which is a word that mm-hmm. most people never would have heard of in the yeah. last few years. Mm-hmm. Suddenly, that you know comes within the sights of the law because mm-hmm. you know of a wider culture of censorship. So, yeah. do you see the potential also to change things at the legal yes. level?
2: We are going to have a research arm too. It's also very ambitious, <laughs> uh, but we're going to have a research arm too, which um, publishes policy papers on areas of the law that we think should be changed. And the problem. In part, with the uh, hate crime official guidance, which mm. Harry Miller challenged unsuccessfully in the High Court and is now going to challenge in the Supreme Court, um, is that it isn't. It is. It's never been consented to mm. by Parliament. Yeah, there hasn't been a democratic process mm. whereby that policy has been debated put to the people, voted for. It's been cooked up by various state agencies yeah. and now being followed religiously by the police, amongst other agencies. The CPS have uh, used the hate crime official guidance to issue guidance to schools, mm-hmm. um, telling you know uh, teachers how to identify uh, what may be in some cases, non-crime hate incidents, but may escalate to become hate crimes being committed by children. And one of the examples is if a child denies the existence, I think it was something of, it was it was one obscure form of gender, which I'd never heard of. It wasn't, it wasn't being pan-gendered, but something like that. it was something so bizarre. It's like uh, you know, but merely challenging the yes. existence mm-hmm. of this particular, you know, one of the twenty-seven types of gender uh, is now going to be designated, or has been designated, a hate crime in this official guidance issued to schools and teachers. Now feel they have to comply with it, and uh, certainly, I think it would be great if we can lobby. Uh, For the law uh, Mm. to be changed and for whatever guidance does exist around hate crimes could at least be debated in Parliament, uh, put on the statute books and clarified.
1: One of of my favourite examples of that particular uh, (laughs) guidance in terms of non-crime hate incidents was when Amber Rudd, the Home Secretary at the time, gave a speech on immigration and then a professor from Oxford, weirdly enough, had heard about the speech...
0: Hadn't actually hadn't listened to actually it. actually listened to the
1: speech <laughs> and informed the police. And it was recorded as a non-crime hate incident and re- sits on the books to this day. So she's yeah. on that yeah. log, yeah. That yeah. log yeah. forever. So she, yeah.
2: And the awful thing about that is if you apply for a job as a mm. carer or a teacher mm. and your employer does an enhanced DBS check... Likelihood is it'll show up in the enhanced DBS check and you will therefore not get the job. I mean, one of the consequences if if the Supreme Court does overturn the High Court and rule that the hate crime official guidance is in fact unlawful and that including the fact on Harry Miller's record that he is guilty of having committed a non-crime hate incident, if they say that's unlawful, then that opens the floodgates to lots of Mm. people who haven't got jobs as teachers and carers because that's on their record uh, to sue the police um, for
0: compensation. No, and I think one thing that, you know, you raised, um, all of the different legislation that we have in this area at Fraser. And I think yeah. it's quite important that we do make quite a fundamental defense of free speech on that front as well. Because as you say, there's a relationship between culture and the law, but there's also, it goes in both directions as well. Like all the work that we've done over the years on campuses, whether it's, um, you know, campaigns that we've run, meetings that we've run with students, all the rest of it. Things like hate speech laws, so in this country, you know, restrictions on incitement to religious and racial hatred are cited as examples as to why it's perfectly acceptable to shut down what they deem to be hateful speech on campus. The problem with hate is that it's an entirely subjective category, as we've seen. You know, one person's hate speech is another person's deeply held moral belief. And I think as soon as that kind of Rubicon was crossed, um, you were always going to have trouble a little bit further down the line because we, you know, when people are kind of making these arguments in relation to free speech, they're saying, well, you know, as a matter of law, these things are legitimate to be curtailed so why does not this hateful speech as we perceive it that exists here on campus should be curtailed as well and I think it's important that we take up those tricky arguments as well Mm. because there's a part of the argument about free speech because it has become as we were talking about earlier a little bit easier to make in some respects Mm. because it is far more respectable people who are being censored you know we're talking about people like Julie Binder we're talking about gender critical feminists people who most people could recognise as you know not having a kind of malign intent necessarily in what it is that they're doing not being far all right, nut jobs, but at the same time, it's it's so crucial that this is a kind of root and branch fundamental defence, um, and to try and also meet the concerns of people on the other side, because we have had these kinds of laws in place for a very long time. Yeah. They're, they're, we've, they're also in place across Europe. This is something which is just business as usual. But we do need to make the case as to why not only is this a limit on free speech, but also why these laws are actually a big problem for challenging bigotry. You know, this is a point that Fleming Rose made famously that um, and something that's important to remember, that Weimar Germany had what we would now call hate speech laws. Yeah. And various Nazi propagandists were um, convicted under those laws and they used it as a propaganda exercise as a way in which to boost their profile. And I think it's important that we still recognise those things. And also, because we were talking a little bit earlier about the way in which it feels like now a lot of the left's battles might be won in relation to a lot of the kind of equality issues, there's still some way to go, but broadly speaking, people feel that these laws are kind of on their side in some respects, Mm. is the fact that there are all kinds of social issues, which I think we risk inflaming more by kind of shutting down discussion on them because of the fear that, for instance, discussion of them might be deemed to be not necessarily criminal, but just not necessarily something that you should say in polite society. You Mm -hmm. know, the fear that if you talk about issues around the you know, cultural tensions or if you talk about issues around grooming gangs or whatever, yeah. that the only endpoint of that can be bad, that the only mm. endpoint of that can be something which is going to inflame racism. I actually tend to think the opposite is the mm-hmm. truth. The yeah. more the, the only people who can talk about, say, the grooming gang issue because mm-hmm. it's the only people who feel confident to do it are the far right. means that the only arguments out there on that issue are mm. going to be the far right ones who want to exploit yes. it to their own agenda. So I think this needs to be a kind of more fundamental defence of these issues but also still we need to go out of our way to demonstrate to people and to make the case that this is not because we want this kind of hatred to run riot is precisely because we want it to be out in the open, to challenge it, to talk about issues in a fair-minded way, rather than just have it squirrelled away in dark corners on the internet, which is why it's so important that we do have free speech in that yeah. um,
2: I think that's a really good point. It's a point that Steven Pinker made on a spiked panel mm. um, a couple of years ago, that if you make it infradict, taboo, to say things which are true but politically inconvenient. Mm. The example he gave was the different rates of violent crime amongst different ethnicities and the fact that amongst African-Americans, the homicide rate is seven times higher than it is amongst Americans of European ancestry. If you make it impossible to say that kind of thing, then you're effectively empowering far right groups who can then present themselves by saying it as fearless truth tellers. Mm -hmm. And if, if they, if they persuade people that lots of other things have been suppressed for politically correct reasons and then make other inflated outlandish claims which aren't true they're much more likely to be believed Mm. Uh, and also you know if you think that merely hearing that fact about the different homicide rates amongst different ethnicities uh, if you think that that inevitably leads to racism and that's why you're not allowing people to talk about it you're giving them no protection from heading down that road once they hear that suppressed fact whereas if you make it clear that you know being an anti-racist is a moral position not an empirical mm-hmm. position not based on any empirical understanding not not on the kind of illusion that every different race in every respect is completely identical then you' you're, you give people the kind of intellectual defenses they need mm-hmm. when confronted with a kind of far right propagandist he's trying to enlist someone in their kind of toxic cause so the idea that by suppressing free speech you're keeping the far right at bay is the exact opposite of the truth by suppressing free speech you're effectively empowering the far right
1: Mm. and so toby what what comes next what can we expect from the free speech union in the next few years and how do we make the culture of free speech happen
2: I think in order to be effective, the Free Speech Union has got to grow and become a mass membership organization. Mm. Now, you know, it's, it's fairly early days. We opened for membership last week and already almost 2,000 people have become members. On Monday, people were signing up at the rate of one every two minutes. Nice. And, uh, I think once that, once we have a bit of momentum, once we've grown uh, and have a a sufficient number of members, then we can be a really effective force. We can help people who are being um, mobbed on Twitter. We can come to their defence. We can can just kind of lavish them with praise. Or we can challenge those people calling for them to be thrown under a bus. We can maybe create some kind of due process that companies can follow. I mean, it's particularly hard for freelancers who Mm. are mobbed on Mm -hmm. Twitter because there's no due process process for them, you know, their employers can just blacklist them um, without having to go through any due process. They have no employment rights at all. I think we can do do some good there. You know, if people start petitions, if they they start circulating open letters, we can start counter petitions. We can Mm. start circulating counter open letters. I think we can provide our members, I hope, with legal assistance. We're talking to a firm of legal insurers about putting a legal insurance scheme in place, whereby if you need to go to law to protect yourself, you'll be able to do that without much in the way of resources and if you need to crowdfund um we'll help you crowdfund so i think there are lots of ways in which we can try and protect free speech and uh, and you know i hope with our research activity and with our educational arm we can just generally begin to kind of tip the balance and turn the tide
1: toby young thanks for coming on the spike podcast thank you You've been listening to the Spike podcast. For more Spike content, don't forget to keep visiting us at spiked-online.com, where you can also make a donation or treat yourself to something from our shop.